You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Merry Christmas to all of you. Uh, It is indeed the most wonderful time of the year. And I am thankful that the season has finally arrived. I look forward to it all year long. Uh, I am looking forward to lots of things about the Christmas season. Christmas music, for one. Uh, I can now allow myself to listen to it now that Thanksgiving is over. Uh, If you have been listening to it before Thanksgiving, you are just wrong, all right? You should not do that. I'm sorry to be harsh here, but uh, uh, I'm also looking forward to uh, our Christmas tree, our, our family uh, tradition. It, w- it went up Friday night. It looks beautiful. I just love to sit around uh, the tree. Uh, I'm also looking forward to our family tradition of watching the movie Elf uh, with my three girls. I don't know what year we're on, uh, but we can almost recite it uh, word for word. And so that is the uh, kind of highbrow holiday entertainment that's going on at the Stuman house. Uh, Will Ferrell in an elf suit is about as highbrow as we get. And uh, so I'm looking, uh, that's our holidays coming up. I, I want to read. Um, an excerpt from a, a blog post about, uh, about Christmas that I read this week, and uh, it's, it's by a woman named Elise Fitzpatrick. Maybe you saw this. This is what she writes. She says, have you ever noticed that when you look at a picture with you in it, you always check to see how you look first? doesn't matter if the picture was taken with the rest of your family standing in front of natural beauty as glorious as the Grand Canyon, the first thing you see is you. I'm old enough to remember when Christmas cards actually had a picture of the manger, magi, shepherds, a star, and the Christ child on them. She says, what do our Christmas cards look like now? You guessed it. They're photographs of the family standing in front of the Grand Canyon. Yes, I actually sent out one of those. Or with our favorite pet, or in front of our new car, or in front of our house. Like with everything else, we've made ourselves the center of the Christmas story, and we're using it to trumpet our own story a story about our family and how wonderful we are. And she says, actually, the story I'm most interested in is the one mostly about how wonderful I am. The story of the nativity, the story of the second person of the Trinity becoming an infant is meant to shock us, to force us to look away from ourselves for just one moment to him, to his birth. And even though this is what we say we believe and our hearts say, yes, thank you, Lord, when we hear this story, We still want Christmas to be about us and our delicious cookies and our mad present-buying skills. We keep inwardly yelling, look at me, while there he lies in a cold stone manger, then in a cold stone tomb, and he says, no, you look to me. It's pretty convicting. I was thinking about that this week, and I think, you know, sometimes as Christians, we like to get all offended by how society treats Christmas these days. You know, it's just another holiday uh, amongst many winter holidays. And we're like, don't say happy holidays to me, right? Because <laughs> it's Christmas. And I say Merry Christmas because Jesus is the reason for the season. And we get all offended. But I think if we would step back a little bit from our indignation and we were just honest with, our, with ourselves a little bit, we'd probably have to say that practically speaking, the reason we love the season uh, has more to do with us uh, than it does with Jesus, right? We love the music, we love the food, we love the traditions, uh, we love the Christmas tree, the lights, the Christmas carols, the, you know, the pecan pie and hot chocolate. 
Uh, We love all of these things. We love the coziness of being with friends and family. Stockings hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. These are all wonderful things. They're lovable things. They're great things. And it's great that we have this season, a whole month, to celebrate this great holiday in our faith. But I think most of the time, our celebration of Christmas as Christians isn't really much different than the way the rest of society celebrates it. Like, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we tend to just celebrate it the way everybody else does, and then we tack on the story of Jesus in the, you know, in the, in the manger. Baby Jesus laying in a manger, we tack that on. And typically, we way undersell what we mean when we say that Jesus is the reason uh, for the season. We settle for what we would call the cozy, sentimental side of Christmas, which is wonderful, and yet we neglect sometimes reflecting upon, dwelling in, worshiping in the deeper, richer meaning of Christmas. And yet the Christmas story, the ancient Christmas story, has, has infinite, like boundless truth for us that affects not just our December, it affects our daily life all year round. Because Christmas is primarily a story about the incarnation of the Son of God, where the lofty came low, where heaven came to earth. It's life-changing truth. As Will mentioned, in the next four weeks, the four weeks of Advent, we're going we're to explore this question. What is the incarnation and what does it mean for us? What is the incarnation of the Son of God and what does it mean? What are its implications in our life? And we're going to pick back up, as Will said, um, in our study of John, uh, by backing up a little bit uh, to chapter 1. And we're just going to look at the first 18 verses over the next four weeks. And we're going to just spend some time there. This is the prologue of John's gospel. Uh, one pastor said that this section of John is, is basically a theology of Christmas. And I really like that. Uh, because I think these 18 verses give us deep, rich theological categories on which to think about the ancient story of Christmas. It's a story that's not primarily about us, uh, even though we try to bring ourselves to the forefront of it sometimes. It's not about us, but it does intersect our story. We are drawn into the wonderful Christmas story and our life has changed there. This week, we're just going to look at the subject of the Christmas story. The subject shows up in the very first sentence. John wastes no time in getting us to the subject. It's this mysterious person called the Word. And then uh, next week, uh, we're going to look at uh, the setting of the Christmas story, uh, which is the world. And John wants us to see something very particular about the world as the setting of the Christmas story. So uh, this week, uh, the subject, the Word. Next week, the setting is the world. And, uh, And I want us to focus on just two things about the subject of the story this week. Number one, who is he? And number two, what did he do? Right? Who is he and what did he do? And we'll spend the bulk of our time on who he is. And then just briefly at the end, I want to mention what he did. And then we'll unpack that over the next three weeks in greater uh, detail. All right? So here's, that's where we're headed. Look back at John 1. If you have a Bible, turn there. Because I want you to see these verses. We're just going to look at the first three verses uh, today. And then a little bit in verse 14. Who is the subject of the Christmas story? John writes in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. Now, we have to pause. You remember the the Charlie Brown Christmas special? um, When 
towards the end of the Charlie Brown Christmas special, Charlie Brown gets so frustrated and he's like, Is there, isn't there anyone that could tell me what Christmas is all about? And he's so frustrated. And Linus says, well, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. You remember Linus walks to center stage, he's got his blanket, he's sucking his thumb, and he says, lights please. And the lights go down and it's just a spotlight on Linus. And he begins to quote from the Gospel of Luke. And he says, they're out in the fields, shepherds abiding with their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and they were so, glory shone around them, and they were so afraid. And he begins the Christmas story by talking about what was happening in Bethlehem and around the, re- the region around Bethlehem. Uh, he, he uses Luke's gospel. So this is how Luke begins the Christmas story. Uh, it's how Matthew begins the Christmas story. It's how Linus began the Christmas story. It's not how John begins the Christmas story. John begins the, the Christmas story not at Bethlehem. He begins the Christmas story in the beginning. Look what he says. In the beginning was the Word. Now, you have to know how audacious it is for John as a Jew to begin his story with that phrase, in the beginning. First of all, the only other story that begins like that is the very first book of Moses, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so if you were a Jew reading John's account of the Christmas story here, uh, you look at it and you say, hey, uh, John, are you saying that you are a storyteller on par with Moses? I mean, you're using this phrase. Are you actually beginning your story with the same phrase that begins the Torah? God's, God's revealed law given to Moses? Is that what you're saying? The second reason it's audacious is to begin the story in the beginning uh, John, is, John is basically saying he has transcendent knowledge because how does he know what was happening in the beginning before the creation of the world? He can't possibly know unless a higher authority revealed it to him. That little phrase, in the beginning, is loaded because when we read that, we have to stop and say, hey, John is not writing just a neat little story here. John is claiming to be writing scripture, divinely inspired words on par with what Moses wrote. Then he introduces the subject. In the beginning was the Word, capital W. The Logos, it's the Greek word there, L-O-G-O-S. John already has the attention of the Jews by using this phrase, in the beginning, and now he has the attention of all the Greeks who might be reading this. Because Greek philosophers had for centuries been fascinated with this question of what holds, what holds the universe together? Like in a world that's always changing, always in flux, what is it that brings order to the world and holds everything together? And there was a philosopher uh, in the 6th century BC uh, named Heraclitus, and he said that it was a divine logic, a divine rationality, a divine reason uh, called the logos that held everything together. And from Heraclitus, Uh, On through the centuries, Greek philosophers were fascinated with this idea of the Logos. In fact, Plato, the great philosopher, 400 years before Jesus, it said that one day he turned to a group of of his followers and he said this, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a Logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. 
That's pretty cool. Plato said that. What John is saying in using this term, the word, he understands the times. He understands the ethos of his day. And he is saying, yes, Plato, you were right. Heraclitus, you were right. There is a word that has come forth from God and revealed him most clearly. There is a word that has come forth from God and introduced God to us. Because you see, the word of a person is actually the clearest revelation of who they are. It's actually how we are introduced to someone. It's how, it's how we come to know someone, through their words, right? Like you can know a lot about someone without ever speaking to them, but you don't, you've never met them until you speak to them, until they speak to you. Like silly example in my life. There are lots of people that I see every week uh, whom I've never met. Uh, up at 24-Hour Fitness, uh, I see some of the same people at least two or three times a week. Uh, there's this one guy who's a trainer. I see him every week. I know who his clients are. I know some of the crazy exercises he teaches. Sometimes I kind of work out close to them so I can pick up some free fitness tips, right? Uh, I know when he got a haircut. I'm not stalking this guy, but I just, I see him every week. And I'm like, oh, haircut. That guy got a haircut, right? I know stuff about him, but I've never met him. There's another guy that went to Texas Tech, or at least I think I know that he went to Texas Tech. He's always wearing tech shirts and hats, and I never met him, but I know that about him. He's also really intense. The reason I know that is because he's always walking really fast between stations, and he's always talking to himself, and he looks half angry, and I'm like, that guy's intense. But I've never met the guy. You see, I know stuff about those two guys, but they've never spoken to me, and I've never spoken to them. You can actually know a lot about God without knowing him. The only way that you might know God is that you would hear his word, that he would speak to you, that you would hear the logos, because the logos is the clearest revelation of who he is, and that's how God introduces himself uh, to people. This logos, this logic of God that holds the universe together is not an idea, it's not a force, it's not a philosophy, it's a person. The person that's the subject of the Christmas story. And John tells us in these first three verses three things about the subject of the story, about the logos, about the word. And the first thing he tells us, these are really important. This is a theology of Christmas. The first thing he tells us is that this word has existed eternally. Look at verse one again. In the beginning was the word. Or we could read that, in the beginning, the Word was. So when everything got started, the Word was already there. He didn't have a beginning point because at the beginning point, He already was. He was not created. He's not a creature like you and I. Now, there was a theologian in the 300s uh, BC, or AD, 300 years after Jesus, a guy named Arius, And Arius taught that the Word, the Son of God, was not eternally existent. He taught that that, that he, he came forth from God the Father just like the rest of us did. In fact, Arius said there was a time when the Son was not. There was a time that the Son didn't exist. In 325 AD, the church council at Nicaea got together. It was the first ecumenical council of the church uh, to discuss, among other things, Arius' teaching. 
And at Nicaea, they came up with what we know as the Nicene Creed. We still affirm the Nicene Creed as Christians today. Listen to what the Nicene Creed says about the Word, about the Son. It says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, like God coming from God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. And here's the key phrase, being of one substance with the Father, being of one eternal substance in essence with the Father by whom all things were made. And so contrary to what what Arius taught, the Nicene Creed said that the Word is eternal. He is of the same eternal substance of the Father. He has always eternally existed. In the beginning, the Word was. Here's the second thing that John says about this Word. He says he was with God eternally. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word And this is so cool. This is really cool. And the word was with God. And that word with is so awesome right here. Because what that means, you see what this means? Before the creation of the world, there was community. There was fellowship. There was relationship. The word was with God. At the foundation of the universe is relationship. Isn't that incredible? Before anything ever happened, the Word was with God. Sometimes my girls will come across a picture of Amy, my wife, and I uh, when we were together before we had our kids, and we're like smiling. We're having fun. We look like we're in love. We look like we have a life. We have relationship. We have purpose. And our girls will be taken off guard by this. They're like, what? Wait. Y'all are just nerds. <laughs> you had like purpose and meaning and relationship in life before we came along? See, before any of us came along, the Father and the Son and the Spirit were with one another. There was perfect community in the Godhead before anything else ever showed up. It was intimate fellowship. You know how you know it was intimate? John gives us a clue in verse 18. If you look at verse 18... In verse 18, it says that the one and only Son was in the bosom of the Father, or some translations say he was at the Father's side. He was right here. How intimate is this? Like, who gets to lay their head on your chest? Who has that kind of intimacy with you? About a month ago, my youngest daughter, Sophie, uh, came up to me and she asked me if I could come tuck her in, in her bed. She wanted to be clear, in her bed. And uh, I was like, oh, sure. So apparently I had gotten out of the habit. I used to always go upstairs to tuck my girls in. I had just gotten out of the habit and I, you know, she would just, she had started coming downstairs to say goodnight to me. I'd give her a hug and kiss and she'd head back up. She was like, tonight, daddy, can you come up and lay down in my bed and tuck me in? She was like, because I don't know, because you know, you're usually like working on your computer. And I'm like, punch myself in the face repeatedly in that moment. And I'm like, Sophie, of course, I would love to come tuck you in. I'll do it every night. This is great. Went upstairs. She's up there already in her bed. She's so excited. I lay down beside her. And you know what she did? She put her head right here on my chest. And we just talked. We laughed. 
Doesn't even, I don't even know what we talked about. Doesn't matter, right? Who has that kind of intimacy with you? There's not that many people that share that kind of intimacy with me, right? Like, I like all of y'all, but none of y'all can put your head on my chest, right? Not that you would want to. The Word was with God in the bosom of the Father. There was withness eternally, which incidentally makes the horror and the rejection of the cross that much more painful when the Father turned his face away. He was always existing. He was with God eternally. And the last thing he tells us in verse 1 is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, meaning he was the eternal God. And he gives us his proof in verse 3. Look at what he says in verse 3. He appeals to the creation. He says, all things were made through him, through this Word, and without him was not anything made that was Made. This is creation language. It takes us back to the first book of Moses, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God the Father spoke a word, let there be light, and the word made light. And the word of God brought to fruition the will of God. And it was this shared creativity, this collaborative Creativity and it was a beautiful scene in Genesis 1 as God spoke a word and that which he spoke came into existence. That's why I love our profession of faith today from Athanasius, St. Athanasius. In fact, uh, can you look back at that just for a moment? I just want you to see something here. I want to say something about it. Just the last three lines there in the profession of faith. Listen to what Athanasius says. He says, there is thus, the last three lines, there is thus no inconsistency between creation and salvation. For the one Father has employed the same agent for both works, affecting the salvation of the world through the same Word who made it in the beginning. And the first time I read that, that changed my life. I mean, because I had never heard so clearly articulated the continuity between creation and redemption, between the beginning of the story and my story. I'd never heard it. See, what John is doing in in his gospel is he's closing the loop between creation and redemption, and the Word is the one who closes the loop. He's at the beginning. He's at the end. The Logos, the Word of God. He creates and then he redeems. He recreates. It's glorious. So according to John, the word was, the word was with God, and the word was God. If we take all three of these things together, I want you to know that your faith cannot find an object that is higher up or further back. Right? We don't need to wait for another revelation from God. Because he can't reveal himself any more clearly. There is no one higher up or further back. There's no one more lofty or more ancient than this word. That's who our faith is in. That's the subject of Christmas, right? That's who he is. Now, I want to just take a moment, and I won't take nearly as long, but I do want to look at for a second at what he did. 
And then over the next three weeks, we'll talk about the implications of what this word did. Who he, who he is is the word, the logos. Look at what he did. I want you to look at the first half of verse 14. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. God became a human being. The eternal one stepped into time. The creator became a part of creation, right? The one who was untouchable became very touchable. The invincible God word of the universe became vulnerable. He actually became killable. This is, I think, the miracle of Christmas, and this is what we celebrate, and this is why we worship. That when God wanted to send his word to us in its clearest form, he didn't send a cold doctrinal statement. Didn't send a list of rules and regulations. He didn't send a contract or legal document to us. Uh, God sent his word wrapped in the warmth of human flesh in a way that we could understand, in the most understandable of ways, the most graspable of ways, right? There's nothing more graspable than a little baby. We saw four of them up here today. You just, you want to pick that baby up and you want to grasp it. You want to hold on to him or her and you just want to stare at him or her. They're captivating. That's how the word showed up in the flesh. There's also nothing more vulnerable than a little baby, is there? They're totally dependent. They're totally exposed. And yet that's how the word of God, the eternal word, showed up in the flesh. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the scandal of that? The one who is eternally self-sustaining, always eternally in the bosom of the Father, now dependent on nourishment at the bosom of a poor teenage girl. Can you imagine that? Amy and I were talking recently about um, when our three daughters were born. Uh, it's getting further and further away. They're 15, 12, and 7 now. And, uh, we, but I remember the days of their births uh, very vividly. They were glorious days. And, and all three of them were born by C-section. So I was playing doctor with my mask on in the, in the uh, delivery room. And uh, and I just remember when, when the doctor handed each of those three precious ones to me. You know, they had sort of a grayish, bluish hue to them. And I like to say that they look kind of like Yoda, right? Except for didn't have the ears, right? And they kind of look like that when they first come out, and then they get more pink as, they, as life goes on over the next few minutes. Uh, but they're, you know, they got these beady little eyes that are glazed over, and they can't, you know, they're not used to the light, and they're crying because they just don't like their new environment. And I remember with each of them, the doctor handed, I was the first one to hold each of them, and then I took, I remember taking each of them and, and bringing them over to Amy, my wife, and laying them right here because they're, you know, they're sewing her up, and, but she's awake and there's a curtain and I, I would lay the, the babies right here. And they're crying and she would begin to speak to them. And all three of them immediately got quiet. And their beady little eyes are darting all over because they know that voice. They've heard that voice. And they're comforted by that voice. They need that comfort. They don't know it, but they long for the comfort of a familiar voice in an unfamiliar setting. Can you imagine the God of the universe putting himself in need 
like that? Can you imagine the humble condescension of the divine creator of the universe becoming a little baby like that? The comforter in need of comfort. The provider in need of provision. The one who makes demons tremble, now trembling at the breast of his teenage mother. See, this is what makes Christianity unique. Every other religion gives you a word about something that you need to do to make God love you, to make God accept you, to not tick God off, to make yourself worthy, to improve yourself. A word about something you should do or not do. But Christianity gives us a word made flesh, a word who is a person whom we can know, who can have a relationship with, who can rescue us. See, every other religion asks you to strive after God, to reach up to the high and lofty God. And yet, in Christianity, God comes low to the lowest of places and reveals himself in the clearest of ways, in ways that we can understand. Through the incarnation, through the enfleshment, it's not a word, I don't think, but through the enfleshment of his eternal word, his son. He came down. And he came down knowing that it would cost him greatly to come down. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. It says, The Son of God had to be made like his brothers and sisters, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. In other words, if Jesus was going to redeem the totality of our humanity, then he had to become totally human. And Jesus didn't come just to save our souls. He came to save us totally. Body, soul, will, mind, intellect, spirit, emotions, all of us. To be our Savior totally, He had to be totally like us, to become fully human. And that's what the Word did when He became flesh. He became fully human. And in His humanity, the Word made Himself vulnerable to, subject to, the greatest difficulties that anyone could know. We know this. We read the story of Jesus. We know that Jesus experienced poverty, hunger, homelessness, loneliness, rejection. He experienced being unnoticed. They didn't recognize him. Being disrespected. He experienced grief, betrayal, heartache, injustice, humiliation, torture. Do you see what this means for us? It means that we have a God who understands anything and everything that we might be going through. Like you and I have a God who understands anything and everything in your life. And so why would you not go to him? Why would you not cling to Jesus as your wonderful counselor, as your great high priest, as your comforter? Are you feeling lonely? Man, he understands. Are you feeling unnoticed in life? He gets it. He gets it. Are you feeling heartache? Are you suffering? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Are you feeling stretched? Are you feeling tempted? Man, he knows. He knows how you feel. Because the word was made flesh, we have a God who's come down and understands. And not only that, his promise is that he's with us, ministering to us. He's Emmanuel, God with us. God come down in the flesh to be with us, to go to him.
I want to close by just saying the most important thing. The most important thing I think we can know about the Word becoming flesh is that it made him vulnerable to death, right? It made him killable. That's actually why he was born. He was born to die. If Jesus was going to overcome death finally, then he would have to go through death in order to do that. And so he became a human being. He was born in the flesh. He lived in the flesh. He died in the, he was killed in the flesh. And then he rose again in the flesh. The purpose of the incarnation uh, was the atonement. Jesus, the son of God, reconciling us to our creator. Right? So the promise of Christmas comes true at Easter. And so this Christmas season, this Advent, would you put your trust in Jesus? Like some of you may have not done that before, never believed in him in this way. Would you put your trust in him? I suspect most of you have believed in him for, many of you have believed in him for years and years and years, and yet maybe you're struggling. Would you trust in Jesus this Advent season? He is God come down for you. You don't have to strive to make him love you and accept you and be pleased with you. You just receive him as God's gift to you. Jesus is God in the flesh, the word made flesh for us. It's good news. Let's thank him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.